hearty and resilient, an incredible ability to defy the odds and triumph through an undying positive attitude. Amy Pulford, room number 242. Hope you've got a firm grip. You're about to meet Amy Pulford, one of the toughest ladies Tasmania has ever produced. But don't worry, she's as kind-hearted as she is strong. Amy Pulford's home for almost all of her life was the often harsh, snow-covered environment of Tasmania's lake country. Here she herded and tended sheep and cattle, trapped rabbits and game and raised two children. She first arrived there in early 1940s at the age of seven when her father, Bob Monks, introduced her to the demands of shepherding, droving stock and trapping. This had been Bob's lifestyle and that of his father since the late 19th century when graziers from the lowlands realised the value of the rich summer pastures on the plateau. At 13, Amy became a full-time shepherd. The rabbits that ran in plague proportions from the 1920s to the 1950s added to the basic foodstuffs and income that could be expected by a late country shepherd. The rabbits were so numerous that in one year Bob purchased a new car with the sale of rabbit skins and Amy bought herself a new stock saddle. Entertainment and camaraderie for the Central Plateau families was the dances at the Steeps Church Hall. Amy described the dances at the hall. You'd go there at night time at dark and you'd still be dancing next morning at daylight. We didn't have flash music. We used to have someone on the old squeeze box and they'd play all night. It was just unreal. She became such a legend of the region due to her hardiness, resourcefulness and kindness that the famous country singer Frank Sargent recorded a ballad titled The Lady of the Lakes as a tribute to her. Annie and Mary Eden, room number 311. Think Tasmania is isolated? Try Flinders Island, where Annie and Mary Eden ran a dairy farm for most of the 20th century. It's an island a fraction the size of Tassie, where lives can pass by without ever being noticed by the wider world. Born in the latter part of the 1890s, for most of the 20th century, Annie and Mary Eden ran a dairy farm near Palina on the north of Flinders Island. They did everything themselves, including milking their 14 cows twice a day by hand. They lived in near total isolation. Throughout their long lives, Annie made handwritten entries in her diaries all the way from 1938 to 1983. Each day she included the weather, what work had been done by the two of them, including notes about their embroidery on unbleached calico, visitors they had on the day, and notes about passers-by to Northeast River. On the roadside, there was a special box for generous fishermen to leave surplus fish for the sisters. Cream was their most important product. It was collected by the official mail carrier, although he was not able to lift the cream can into the back of his vehicle, but the two sisters swung it up with ease. George Blythe, a wealthy bachelor, lived not far from the Eden farm. He ran sheep and cattle. For many years, Mary would arrive at his front door, regular as clockwork, with a billy of milk from their cows, having walked the not inconsiderable distance from her farm. Morning, George, said Mary. Morning, Mary, replied George, and that was the extent of their relationship. Mary passed away in 1979 and Annie in 1984. Even now, the Eden sisters are still spoken of and recalled fondly on Flinders Island.
Barney Williams, room number 112. Everyone's got a favourite hobby, although Barney Williams' favourite pastime was slightly unusual. He dug holes, lots of them. So many, in fact, that it was said he could have built a fence around Tasmania. Born and raised in the northwest of Tasmania, Barney spent seven years on Robins Island milking cows until he was 17 when he quit. He couldn't read or write, so he thought he'd give prospecting a try. He liked digging holes so much he kept doing it for a very, very long time. As the decades passed, he became known as the Hermit Prospector at Tema. His shafts were about 5 feet square and 30 feet deep. He only worked them in the summer because in the winter they were filled with water. As well as digging holes, Barney enjoyed teasing the younger prospectors who teased him. He once claimed to have landed hundreds of crayfish from the Franklin River in one afternoon. When challenged that he could not carry that many, he answered, Carry him? Of course I couldn't. I drove him before me like a mob of cattle. Barney was once told that if he had put as much work into digging post holes as he had with his shafts, he would have a fence right around Tasmania, to which he replied, And what good would that do? Others thought that Barney just loved to dig. I think if old Barney found a load of ore, he'd bury it again and go looking for more. Barney kept digging shafts until he was 85 years old. He only stopped when his friends said, You've done enough, Barney, and took him away to a well-earned retirement in a nursing home. Rumours abounded that he tried to dig his way out. Brother Payne, room number 117. A Dickensian character, Brother Payne peddled his services as a knife sharpener door-to-door on the streets of Hobart in the late 19th century. Brother Payne couldn't have known when he posed with his cart that he would be giving the future a rare glimpse of Hobart life in the 1800s. A sawyer and cutler by trade, his name, Brother, was likely a courtesy title of Methodist origin. Brother Payne steered his makeshift workshop trolley to people who did not have transport or the time to leave their homes. Women occupied with unrelenting domestic duties were his main customers. They needed knives and scissors regularly sharpened and goods and services delivered by hawkers and peddlers. Unusually for the time, police and commercial photographer Thomas J. Nevin took several photographs of a poor man plying his trade, leaving us with a clear image of Brother Payne. His doleful appearance, ragged hat and rambling contraption are powerfully evocative expressions of the hard times and inequities that befell the poor and outcast in the early days of the colonies. Brother Payne died in Hobart in 1893 at the age of 88. Catherine Bartley, room number 126. Life wasn't easy for poor Catherine Bartley. She survived the famine in Ireland, was transported to Van Diemen's Land, sentenced to hard labour and lost her children, but she endured something many people couldn't do. Catherine Bartley disembarked in Van Diemen's Land on the 27th of October 1850 at the age of 20. She had survived the famine in Ireland by stealing. She received a sentence of seven years transportation for stealing a cow and had previously served time for stealing a parasol. When she was discovered to be pregnant, she was charged with being a common prostitute and given six months hard labour in the female factory. When her baby was born, he was taken from her and placed in the Queen's Orphanage School. He died a month later. 
Catherine and the convicted highway robber James Hall were granted approval for marriage in 1856. They eventually settled with their five children at Mangana, a mining town on the fringe of the Tasmanian wilderness. James and his sons worked in the local gold mines. Catherine was to later nurse her boys as they died of miners' lung one by one. She died in 1888. In an obituary to Catherine, there is no mention of her convict past. It only read, An old and much respected resident of Mangana passed away a few days back, having a large number of friends and relatives to mourn their loss. I allude to the death of Mrs. James Hall, who came into the district with her husband at the first starting of the Mangana gold mines, where she and Mr. Hall have remained ever since, bringing up a family who do credit to her motherly care. Fatty Appleton, room number 302. How many people can carry a barrel of beer under each arm? Fatty Appleton could, when he wasn't throwing brawlers out of his pub in the same manner. Cascade Brewery worker Fatty Appleton was well known throughout southern Tasmania for his strength, his girth and laconic sense of humour. He worked on the Hobart docks, loading and unloading Cascade barrels from the ships around the turn of the century. Short, stocky and stout, Fatty's prodigious strength allowed him to carry a firkin barrel under each arm. This skill would later prove handy for crowd control down at his local hotel whenever things got out of hand. Anytime some customers felt like fighting each other, a stranger or Fatty himself, it was no problem for Fatty. He'd just scoop each combatant up under each arm and turf them out onto the street. Late 19th century photographer Harold Rise captured this humorous well-balanced composition at a time when it was not considered proper to photograph woggish characters with no social status or notoriety. Frank Long, room number 131. Introducing Frank Long, the red-headed offspring of a pair of convicts who grew up to be one of the island's toughest prospectors, with a nose for silver and an eye for gold, Frank helped forge Western Tasmania into a mining powerhouse. Frank Long was the son of ex-convicts who became one of Tasmania's hardiest bushmen and prospectors. The early exploration of the inhospitable west coast called for men of the highest calibre, men of stamina and exceptional physique combined with staunch determination, which Frank had in spades. He joined Surveyor General Sprint's party in 1876 to form tracks into the damp, dense and impenetrable forests and gorges and investigate the geology and mineralogy of the country for the government. On one of Frank's prospecting expeditions for a Hobart syndicate, they travelled overland from Waratah, the arrangement being that stores of provisions should be sent by sea to Macquarie. The vessel, however, did not put in an appearance until two months after her due date, and for five weeks the ill-starred travellers had to exist on a very meagre supply of badges wombats and wallabies, often being near starvation. In July 1882, Frank Long started out to prospect for a syndicate, Arthur and Long Plains Prospecting Association. The Mercury featured the story in 1936, telling the story of how Frank and an associate found gold and a silver load in a creek near Zihan. Eventually, he pegged out an 80-acre section for his company, now known as the Mount Zihan Mine, and was declared declared a reward claim. 
His first samples yielded 70 ounces of silver per tonne. Frank sold his shares for £600 and the government, in recognition of his discovery, granted him £1 a week pension. Henry Jones, room number 307. Don't drop out of school, that's what we're told, but it worked out for Henry Jones, who skipped class when he was 12 to work in a factory he ended up buying. Locally born and bred, Henry Michael Jones left school to paste labels on jam tins at 12 years of age. He worked for 10 hours a day, six days a week, earning four shillings a week. From the outset, Henry demonstrated a concerted work ethic and interest in the business. He would take any overtime offered him and was one of the few volunteers to treat perishable fruit on a Saturday afternoon where others refused and could often be seen wandering the factory floor in his downtime, watching and learning from the elite jam boilers, pourers and packers. This dedication was eventually rewarded with promotion to jam boiler. When he was 28, he put everything he'd learned to use. He took over the factory and renamed it H. Jones & Co. IXL Jams. Catchy slogans appeared on the jam tins. Your palate can tell when it's IXL. His products sold so well that the business soon came to dominate the trade throughout southern Tasmania and the factory expanded until it occupied nearly all of the buildings along Hunter Street in Hobart. Henry was knighted soon after the war in 1919 for good and faithful services to the King and the Empire, most notably for his support of fundraising activities, his financial advice to the Australian and British governments, and his donation of a military aeroplane to the British Army. Hobart cynics were quick to dub Sir Henry Jones the Knight of the Jamton. Henry Reed, room number 121. Young Henry Reed turned up in Hobart in 1827, but decided to walk to Launceston instead. Good thing he did. Once he got there, he set about becoming one of the finest merchants the island has ever seen. In 1827, at 20 years of age, Henry Reed arrived in Hobart Town, but his goal was Launceston. With no conveyance available, he walked the 193 kilometres and obtained a position in a Launceston store. An enterprising man, he went on to become a well-known merchant, Wesleyan preacher and philanthropist. During the early years of setting up his Launceston business, he was on a ship from Sydney when the captain of the Hedy decided to anchor and wait for calmer weather. This did not suit Henry, who decided that he would set off alone in one of the ship's small boats. All went well until a squall hit the little boat and overturned it. Henry climbed onto the keel of the boat. He drifted for about five hours, becoming numb with cold and the wet, fearful that he was in danger of falling into the water. So I pulled off my clothes, with the exception of one stocking, and decided to swim for it. It was now, however, I was now, however, completely exhausted, and with a God be merciful to me, went down expecting death. But to my surprise and joy, my feet touched the bottom. Henry had landed on a spit of gravel stretching deep into the bay. He waded ashore and headed for a cabin where he took shelter for the night. The next morning, the Hetty appeared and Henry boarded her again. When I got on the when I got on board, the captain could hardly have been more surprised if a spirit had appeared in front of him. John. 
Carlotta, room number 145. Despite being confined to a wheelchair and having limited use of his fingers, John Palotta created a miniature Tudor village that continues to marvel and delight people to this day. A victim of polio at the age of nine, John Palotta migrated to Tasmania from England with his family when he was in his late 20s. He spent most of his life in a wheelchair and had use of only three fingers on his right hand. In the early 1950s, while living at Dover, overlooking Esperance Bay in southern Tasmania, John commenced building a model Tudor village. Despite his severe disability, he built the amazing and authentic models using a pair of tweezers, a razor blade and a supply of matchsticks, dental plaster, wire and paint. It took him about eight months merely to produce a single house 15 to 18 inches long. Some of the construction is so intricate that John cut single matchsticks into 30 pieces to make stained glass windows. Tiny figures and trees built from bent wire and moss added life and charm. The village took 11 years to construct and featured replicas of over 40 buildings in his English hometown. John's miniatures also depicted life in Tudor England, telling stories of poachers, archers and gypsies. John rented a quaint old coachman's house on Sandy Bay Road, Hobart, in 1958 and installed his Tudor Court model village. Thousands of tourists passed through his village and watched in awe as he worked. When he died in 1971, at the age of 49, the Mercury quoted that his was a story of triumph over adversity. Georgian Georgensen, King of Iceland, room number 212. Please kneel, you're in the presence of a king. Georgian Georgensen might be the most interesting man ever to set foot in Tasmania. Not only was he one of the founders of the colony, he also returned as a convict after he became the King of Iceland. Seriously. Georgian Georgensen is remembered as the convict king in Van Diemen's land and the dog days king in Iceland. The swashbuckling Danish adventurer was described by author Marcus Clarke as one of the most interesting comets recorded in history. He joined the crew of the Lady Nelson in Sydney in 1801 to participate in exploration and settlement before the French claimed any territory. Consequently, Georgian was present at the founding of the settlements of Brisbane Cove in 1803 and Sullivan's Cove in 1804. He enjoyed the thrill of exploration and carried a Bible stuffed in one pocket and Samuel Johnson's Rosellas in the other. From these, he and a companion made, named many local landmarks, Baghdad, Jericho, Jerusalem, Lake Tiberias and the River Jordan. Georgian returned to Denmark in 1806 and commanded a Danish privateer. In the summer of 1809, he traveled to Iceland and led an extraordinary coup overthrowing the Danish governor and installing himself as temporary king of Iceland. But it wasn't to last. In 1826, Georgian was back in Van Diemen's land, having been transported from England as a convict, guilty of debt and theft. Rhys Davies, in a vivid biography, says, Blithe and confident, he set out into the wide, romantic world to earn a king's crown for his head and a pair of convict's irons for his legs. Lula Cowchin, room number 229. Ever built a new life in a foreign country? Lula Cowchin did, not far from here in the tin mining town of Wildborough. 
She also married a man 24 years older than her, had 11 children and was crippled from birth by having her feet bound, but she didn't let any of that stop her. Lula, Lula, Kao Yon, traveled directly from Guangdong province to the isolated Chinese tin mining community of Wildborough in 1886 at the age of 16. She was betrothed to marry Ma Mon Chin, Ma Wen Zen, who was 40 years old at the time. Ma Mon Chin was a highly respected clan headman, storekeeper and tin miner who had come to Tasmania from Guangdong with his father and brother in the 1860s. He used his considerable influence to bring Lula to Van Diemen's land to be his wife. She arrived in Wildborough with her nine-year-old able-footed attendant, Len Heng. Len was a necessary companion for Lula, for her feet had been bound in the traditional Chinese manner since she was a child. Over the next 22 years, Lula and Ma Monchin had a family of seven sons and four daughters. Although the family name was Ma, they adopted Chin as their English surname. In later years, a Wildborough resident, Mrs. Bill Grouse, recalled that Mrs. Chin lived in a nice house overlooking the Yoss River and was a very gracious lady. It was a pleasure to see her serve her visitors afternoon tea in fine tiny Chinese cups using hang me tea, often wearing her Chinese robes and tiny pretty slippers on her tiny feet. Having been born within the walls of China, her feet were bound so that her feet would be becoming to a Chinese lady. Maria Lord, room number 222. Marriage proposals can be funny things. Sometimes a bloke bends down on one knee. Other times, he lines up a row of female convicts, picks one out and carries her off to Van Diemen's land. Lieutenant Edward Lord sailed to Sydney from Hobart Town in 1805 to find a wife. He went to the female factory and ordered all the women to be paraded before him so he could choose one. He selected Maria Risley and asked her whether she would go to Van Diemen's land with him. With her only other option being to stay in jail, she accepted his proposal. They arrived in November 1805 and Maria promptly opened one of the first shops in the colony. Edward, despite his senior rank in the colony, spent his time gambling away the money she made for the family. With little competition, Edward became the largest stockholder in Van Diemen's land. He obtained a free pardon for Maria in 1808 and they were married by the Reverend Robert Knotwood. Edward made many business trips backwards and forwards to England, often taking their children with him for their education. During his absences, Maria acted as his chief agent and over one third of the colony's resources were under her control by 1820. During Edward's absence in 1822, Maria appears to have begun a relationship with Charles Rowcroft. Edward returned to the colony and commenced legal action against Rowcroft, charging him with criminal conversation with Maria. It later transpired that Edward had been having his own prolonged criminal conversation in England with his children's nurse, by whom he had five children. Lord Rowcroft left the colony but Maria remained and, albeit on a smaller scale, continued successfully in business on her own. She died in Bothwell where she ran a trading store in 1859. Martha Hayes, room number 317. Martha Hayes was transported to Van Diemen's land as a child, and she didn't even break the law. 
her mother did, and Martha went with her, but that didn't stop her from carving out a place in history. Martha Hayes was a beautiful 16-year-old girl when, on September 13, 1803, she became the first free English woman to set foot in Van Diemen's Land. She was three months pregnant to the 23-year-old Commandant of Van Diemen's Land, Lieutenant John Bowen. She had originally been transported as the child of a convict, her mother Mary, but while on transit to Australia she caught the eye of the dashing lieutenant and when he was sent to Van Diemen's Land to form a settlement, she went with him. Once the thrill of landing in Van Diemen's Land was over, life for Martha would have been hard, tedious and at times frightening. Three months later, John left Martha in the ramshackle, hopeless settlement and sailed back to Sydney. It was a rather shameful situation when the birth of an illegitimate baby was imminent. The government sent, government, governor sent Bowen straight back again for deserting his post. He arrived just in time to help deliver his daughter, Henrietta, the first English baby to be born in the new settlement. Recalled to England, Bowen turned his back on family obligations, leaving Martha again, but this time with her land grant, livestock and a timber house. Soon after his departure, Martha realised that she was pregnant. She had a second daughter, Martha Charlotte. Bowen never saw his daughters grow up. Not only did Martha become respectable and accepted as such by what passed for polite society, she also made sure that her daughters were accepted as young ladies and as daughters of a gentleman and naval captain. Peter Gordon Fraser, room number 102. With the mind of a manager and the soul of an artist, Peter Gordon Fraser managed to do what many of us dream about, have a highly successful career while pursuing an equally rewarding hobby. The son of a clergyman born in 1808 in England, Peter Gordon Fraser held dual roles of interest in early Tasmanian life. He was a highly decorated public servant as well as being a renowned artist. As a young man, he joined the colonial office and in 1839, he journeyed to Tasmania where he was appointed sheriff of the colony. He was such a prudent manager of colonial power that in 1843, he was promoted to colonial treasurer and commissioner of internal revenue. Outside of very serious professional life, Fraser became enamored with the Tasmanian landscape and countryside. He took to sketching and painting watercolours and joined the Hobart Sketching Club where he associated with other artists of the time. He organised an exhibition for himself and his fellow artists where he received favourable reviews. Other exhibitions followed just as his career in the public service kept advancing. In 1851 he was elected to the Legislative Council, an important role that nevertheless didn't stop him from producing more watercolours and sketches, many of which were highly regarded. In 1860 he and his family returned to England where he died in 1888. Joy, Swallow and the Cypress, room number 233. Listen closely to the story of Pop Joy, Swallow and the Cypress. A greater tale of mutiny, adventure, survival and justice has never been told. On the 9th of August 1829, the Cypress was sheltering at Church Bay when 18 of the 33 convicts on board captured the soldiers and crew. 44 people were left stranded at Rechurch Bay with meagre supplies. 
The mysterious convict, John Popjoy, at first joined with the pirates but slipped overboard and swam ashore just as the boat departed for New Zealand under William Swallow's command. Swallow and his motley crew then bypassed Tahiti before sailing across the Pacific for Japan, accidentally reaching the Chinese coast instead. There they scuttled the Cypress and rowed off in the ship's boat. It was then February 1830. This epic tale of endurance was matched by the adventures of the castaways at Rechurch Bay. They were saved from starvation by the efforts of John Popjoy and Tom Morgan, who constructed a coracle out of wattle branches and canvas. After paddling the frail craft in the open sea for several days, the two men were picked up by a passing ship, whose captain arranged for the rescue of the other castaways. Meanwhile, William Swallow had come ashore at Canton and secured a passage to London. Unfortunately, he and his four fellow sailors were recognised as escaped convicts, arrested and tried for piracy at the Old Bailey. The chief witness against them was John Popjoy, who had arrived in England after receiving a pardon for his efforts in rescuing the castaways. Rocky Whelan, room number 135. Think you've had a bad night's sleep? Try living in a cave after spending the day in the dangerous life of a bush ranger. That was how John Rocky Whelan lived, at least until he was caught. John Rocky Whelan was a big man for his time, standing at six feet one inch and of heavy build. He had an extensive record when he escaped from Port Arthur, evading the dogs and guards at Eaglehawk Neck before making his way to Hobart Town and setting up camp in a cave on the eastern face of Mount Wellington in the 1850s. While living on the mountain, he was known to have called in at the home of a local magistrate and on snowy winter nights would sit in the back of the kitchen by the fire and read the Hobart Town Gazette. The magistrate did not make any attempt to report these visits from Rocky, knowing the consequences of his actions. Rocky was arrested by chance many months after Mr James Dunn went missing when walking from Hobart Town to his home in Franklin. It was reported that Whelan was taken into custody by Constable Mulreenan at the shop of, Mount, of Mr Gorney, bootmaker, while fitting on a pair of boots, having at the time a pistol in his pocket loaded up to the muzzle. The eagle-eyed constable had spotted a pair of worn-out boots with Mr. Dunn's name printed on them, lying by the door of the bootmaker. The constable pressed a young man in the street to assist him, and together they captured Whelan, who did try to shoot his way out, but the weapon failed to fire. Rocky was then hanged for the multiple murders he'd committed while bush-ranging on the mountain. Such was the life of the cave-dwelling criminal in the 1850s. Sammy Cox, room number 248. Born noble before he abandoned his family out of fear for his life, Sammy Cox led a long, varied, and almost unbelievable life. Samuel Emmanuel Jervis worked as a gardener for many years in the Carrick and Longford district, where he was known as Sammy Cox. Sammy claimed that he was born on the 15th of November, 1773, the son of Squire Jervis of Shenston Park, Litchfield, England. At the age of 10, his father was killed and he became a ward of his uncle, Captain John Jervis. On leaving college, Sammy accompanied Captain Jervis on a voyage to the South Seas. Frightened by the boatswain into believing that his uncle intended to maroon him on an uninhabited island to claim his inheritance, Sammy decided to escape. 
When the ship sought fresh water at Tamar Heads, northern Van Diemen's Land, in 1789, Sammy scarfed into the bush. The ship was forced to leave without him. After their departure, he was alone in an unknown country. He attempted to escape from Tasmanian Aborigines by swimming, but they quickly overtook him. The Aborigines treated him very kindly, and he lived with the tribe until 1812, when he met some pioneer settlers near Dalaran, the Cox family. Although he had been with the Aborigines for over 23 years, Sammy joined the family on their farm east of Longford and eventually took their name. Sammy eventually entered the Launceston Benevolent Asylum, where he died on the 5th of June 1891, aged 117 years. It was later proved by relatives in England that his claims about his lineage and history were all true. Saru Briley, room number 207. Now one of the most famous tales of modern times, the story of Saru Briley's life is defined by sorrow, courage, determination, hope, and love. Born Sheru Munshi Khan in Kandwa, India in 1981, Saru Briley's life is now known throughout the world. When he was five years old, Saru and his brother Gudu climbed on a train bound for Burantpur. When they reached their destination, Saru became exhausted and his brother told him to wait as he searched for a train home. But Gudu did not return, so Saru climbed aboard another train and ended up in Kolkata. He tried to return home, but every train he bought him he boarded brought him back to Kolkata. After two weeks of living around the station, he was taken to the police and reported as a lost child. He did not know enough information about his family for the authorities to find them, so he was moved to the Indian Society of Sponsorship and Adoption. Soon afterwards, he was adopted by the Briley family and moved with them to Hobart. In Hobart, he went from being a hungry child to living in upper-middle-class Western household. He soon forgot how to speak Hindi and grew up speaking English. Eventually, he moved to Canberra, where he studied at the Australian International Hotel School. Saru's life changed again when the world was introduced to Google Earth. With this technology, he began following the railway lines that led to Kolkata Railway Station, hoping to find his family. Eventually, he managed to find what he thought was his hometown. In 2012, he travelled there, armed only with his old memories and a photo of himself as a child. The locals took him to his mother, brother and sister, where they finally reconnected after 30 years apart. Simon Current, room number 217. Battling bureaucracy and some fierce opposition, Simon Current was determined to share Tasmania's spectacular natural assets with the world in a sustainable manner. The fighting sometimes got fierce, but when the dust finally settled, everyone had won. A pioneer of nature-based tourism in Tasmania, Simon Current made a grand entrance into the state's tourism industry in 1984 when he transformed an old bushwalker's hut at Cradle Mountain into the charismatic Cradle Mountain Lodge, putting Tasmania on the world stage as a wilderness destination. Rather than hang his hat on one project, Simon went on to develop a range of successful tourism ventures in Tasmania, including Franklin Manor, Strawn Village, Gordon River Cruises, and Peppermint Bay. These endeavours made for some colourful and very public stouches with various parties opposing Simon's push for sensitive development in and around Tasmania's pristine natural assets. 
Simon, however, was deeply passionate about the Tasmanian wilderness and it was his firm belief that the more people who experience these areas in a tasteful and sustainable manner, the more ambassadors will empower to preserve these assets for our children. He devoted great energy to fighting for this belief, his spirit never more evident than in the development of his legacy project, Pump House Point. Over a period of 18 years, Simon waded through a vast approvals process, working closely with the Heritage Commission and the Parks and Wildlife Service to obtain permission for the refurbishment of two decommissioned industrial buildings. Buildings located inside Tasmania's Wilderness World Heritage Area and dramatically situated out over Australia's deepest lake, Lake St. Clair. In 2015, his dream was finally realised as the retreat launched to international acclaim and, importantly, at last, with support from all corners of the political spectrum. Teddy Sheehan, room number 236. Ordinary seaman Teddy Sheehan was anything but ordinary. During World War II, he engaged in an act of unbelievable sacrifice and bravery that has to be read to be believed. Edward Teddy Sheehan was born at Lower Barrington on the 28th of December 1923 as the 12th of 16 siblings. After leaving school in year five, Teddy enlisted as an ordinary seaman with the Royal Australian Navy at the age of 17, becoming an Orlican anti-aircraft gunner on the Corvette HMAS Armadale. Shortly after 3pm on the 1st of December 1942 in the Arafura Sea, the Armadale was attacked by Japanese warplanes. She was hit by two torpedoes and began to sink rapidly. Many of the crew were killed or injured when the Japanese gunners strafed the water. One of the injured crew members was Teddy. Ordinary seaman Arm M. Caro, one of Teddy Sheehan's shipmates, reflected, Teddy died, but none of us who survived, I am sure, will ever forget the gallant deed that won him a mention in dispatches. When the order abandoned ship was given, he made for the side, only to be hit twice by the bullets of an attacking zero. None of us will ever know what made him do it, but he went back to his gun, strapped himself in, and brought down a jet plane, still firing as he disappeared beneath the waves. Another of Teddy Sheehan's shipmates declared, those of us who survived, well, remember Teddy's action, for, who knows, we too may have perished at the hands of the Japanese gunners except for his bravery. He was only 18 years old. Walter Paisley, room number 238. If you can't stand naughty children, look away now. Walter Paisley was possibly the cruelest and most dangerous youth ever recorded. He eventually turned things around, but not before causing a lot of trouble. At age 13, Walter Paisley was sentenced to seven years transportation after he was caught breaking into a house in Buckinghamshire. He arrived at Point Pure near Port Arthur in 1834. The first years were tough and discipline was strict. Over the next five years, 40 charges were made against Walter's name and he spent an average of more than two days of every month in solitary confinement. As time went on, Walter's conduct became increasingly violent. He destroyed his work in the carpenter's shop, struck a fellow boy with a spade, ripped his catechism apart, punched the schoolmaster and threatened others with a stolen lancet. After he was caught with a chicken that he had stolen from the superintendent's garden, 
he attacked one of the boys who had provided evidence against him. In 1839, Walter was imprisoned at Port Arthur, but eventually received a conditional pardon in 1847. Judging from his official record, Walter Paisley's life was a failure. However, in October 1859, it was reported that the celebrated woodman Walter Paisley lectured on woodcrafting in Launceston. Walter had found his passion and after a terrible start in life, had found balance and meaning. In the, at the 1998 Wooden Boat Festival in Hobart, a spokesman from the Hobart Maritime Museum enthused, Tasmania is noted for its fine boat building timbers and, timbers and superb craftsmanship. It was revealed that the oldest, most beautifully crafted dinghy, taking pride of place on the display, was built in 1871 by master craftsman, 52-year-old Walter Paisley. William and Terza, room number 240. Think a long-distance relationship is hard these days? Imagine how William Paramore and Thurza Cropper felt. Their relationship lasted across oceans, cultures, and six years before they were finally reunited, all with no internet, of course. Young William Thomas Paramore met Thurza Cropper, and that was that. Eighteen months later, he wrote to her asking for a less bo-peep acquaintance and a more unrestrained one. A year on, Thurza was living in France and William was making plans with his family to emigrate to Van Diemen's land on the other side of the world. So began their epistolary courtship. The Paramours arrived in Van Diemen's land on 1823 and William set about encouraging Thurza to travel out to join him. Letters could take up to six months to travel halfway around the earth. In August of 1823, he wrote with masculine honesty, I shall take care to provide, as I mentioned to you before, in case of my being dead on your arrival. More candor in June of 1824. If you should have any money left after paying your passage, you must spend the rest in what you think most necessary for housekeeping, understanding that I am provided with nothing. Pragmatically, he added, and it is lucky that I thought of it, you must bring a ring. His August letter was more dramatic. I thought you might be here in a year at most. T'was too extravagant, I must confess, but you must try to come in two years. During those years of waiting and yearning, William helped on the family farm and worked for Lieutenant Governor Arthur, who held him in great esteem. Finally, Thurza joined him in Tasmania and they married in 1827, six long years after William's first letter. William Duke, room number 107. You never know how long your life will be, so it's important to make it count, just like the very talented William Duke did. Born in Cork in 1815, William Charles Duke only lived for 38 years, but he made his short life count for a lot. He trained as a carpenter, then in 1840 he journeyed to Australia with his wife Lucy. They then travelled to New Zealand where he became enamoured with Māori chiefs. In 1844, he relocated to Hobart Town, where he worked as a carpenter, sculptor and artist. His paintings of whaling scenes, landscapes and portraits were highly sought after. He did a lot of work with the Royal Victoria Theatre, now known as the Theatre Royal, and also had the opportunity to paint two Māori convicts, fulfilling his fascination with the Māori people that had begun when he'd travelled to New Zealand. He was perhaps most well known for building the Grand Diorama with Richard Johnson, 
an exhibition that consisted of circular moving cityscapes of Constantinople, Florence, Jerusalem and Venice. The local newspaper stated that it was one of the best of its kind witnessed in the colony. Lured by the call of the goldfields, Duke moved with his family to Victoria, where he painted his last work, a portrait of an American circus owner. Becoming ill, his finances quickly evaporated and he died in 1853, leaving his family destitute. William Lane, room number 140. Whaling was one of Tasmania's earliest colonial enterprises. In the days before gas or electricity, whale oil exported from Tasmania was used to light the streets of London. Few are aware that whaling was also one of the first European industries in which Aboriginal people came to excel. The most famous of these Aboriginal whalers was William Lane. From around 1855, Lane began work on several whaling ships out of Hobart, including the Runnymede and the Aladdin. He had a truly cosmopolitan life, crewing with indigenous people from across the Pacific, Africans, First Nations Americans, and sailors from far away, as far away as the Azores and Cape Verde Islands. Lane would have traveled extensively across the Indian, Pacific, and Great Southern Oceans. Whaling was made famous by Herman Melville's 1851 novel, Moby Dick, written about the same time. One of the key characters in Moby Dick is Quig, and Melvin might just as easily have been writing about Lane. Kwikwig was a native of Kokovoko, an island far away to the west and south. It is not down in any map. True places never are. Nevertheless, a man like Kwikwig you don't see every day. He and his ways were well worth unusual regarding. Lane built an independent life for himself through his career at sea. When ashore between voyages, he worked his own team of oxen hauling timber. He counted merchants, lawyers and governors amongst his friends. When he died, the people of Hobart lined the streets to bid him farewell, out of respect for a man who was born into the tribes of the world's oldest living culture and went on to make the new world his home. <laughs>